Welcome to the Podium Podcast, where we bring together leaders from the worlds of sports, media and philanthropy to discuss the people and stories that change the world. At Podium Pictures, we make impact. We encourage you to visit PodiumPictures.com to learn more about our mission. Now, here's your host, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Brett Rapkin. If you've got kids, you're probably familiar with Melissa and Doug, those beautiful, creative, unique toys and children's accessories that kids and parents just can't get enough of. Well, today we've got Melissa Bernstein, who co-founded Melissa and Doug with her husband, you guessed it, Doug, many years ago, and have created quite a successful business. It was started out of Doug's parents' garage, and since then their innovative products have touched the lives of millions of children. Melissa Bernstein is an entrepreneur, a wife, and a mother of six children, but became so much more when she wrote her memoir, Lifelines, an inspirational journey from profound darkness to radiant light. In the book, she shares her previous struggles with a severe eating disorder and suicidal ideation. She admitted in an interview with People Magazine, she would carry a bottle of pills around, quote, knowing that could be my way out. She's also the founder of Lifelines.com, a wellness brand aimed at assisting people with their own mental health journey. Today, we also have a special guest interviewer, Podium COO, Melissa Foreman. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, by the way, for doing this and taking the time to speak oh with gosh. us. I'm so excited. Yeah, my we are pleasure. too. And uh, also for the little curveball about me doing the interview and not Brett. So he is here, by the way, off camera or off mic. He's so enough. Probably can't. Hi. Hi. Aw. So you get me instead, but he's been I, shooting I'm all week. I'm thrilled. I, I, I hope I you are. Thrilled. <laughs> I'm beyond thrilled. And, you know, I've spent a ton of ton of my career doing interviews of, you know, athletes and influencers and all kinds of different, you know, I was talking to a friend about this the other day and, and realizing that, like, what do I, what do I love, right? Like, how do we find what we love? Like, how important mm -hmm. that is in, in life? And really, for me, it's, it, part of it is meeting new people. You know, it's it's having an adventures, but the adventures always surround people. Mm -hmm. And my favorite time before a shoot has always been the night before, when you get to meet whoever you're about to go out on the, that in that adventure with, and you get to hear their story, their backstory, and that essentially is what a podcast is all about, right? That's true. So I get to hear you're you're my night before. <laughs> my night before oh gosh i know sounds uh, very intimate it is very intimate well this is like an intimate conversation and we will you know we will have adventures you and i in the coming years i believe that to be true that is true that is true so uh, you know let's just start i think we came together because of lifelines, not so much because of Melissa and Doug. So I, I'd like to start there. I'd like to start with lifelines. I'd like to start with, you know, your why about that. And I think that as we get into that, we'll naturally talk about your achievements, not just at Melissa and Doug, but before that. And, you know, what what makes up the Melissa Bernstein DNA. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about lifelines. Sure. 
So gosh, I feel like, you know, I lived two lives. I would say the first half of my life, which included Melissa and Doug for nearly 33 years. And then this part of my life, which now includes lifelines. And it, it sounds too, too trite to say, but sort of the first half of my life was largely living inauthentically, even though Melissa and Doug and the creative process was always the most authentic, honest thing I could do. But in terms of who I was and the acceptance of myself was always inauthentic. And then I jumped into the abyss kind of between in the last you know few years. And Lifelines is about crawling out of the abyss into authenticity, true authenticity, true acceptance of myself in totality, true like integration of all my full spectrum of emotion and all these shattered pieces of myself and really finally living up to my full potential. I love that. So what is Lifelines specifically? So Lifelines started as really telling my story. You know, it started very personally because I had a story that I just hid from not only myself, but certainly the rest of the world, which really disabled me from being who I truly was and showing who I truly was to the world. So I lived behind a facade, hiding who I was that so many of us do. I mean, 98% of us never self-actualize. We, we die saying, I never lived a life true to myself. So I wasn't really unique in that. I was very ordinary in that because everybody did it. I think maybe my, my only uniqueness was once I said, I, I can't do this any longer. Like the cry of my own soul to be seen authentically is growing so loud and so insistent and so fervent that I can't keep hiding in the shadows. And that was when I kind of finally cracked, you know, from the exhaustion of putting up the facade, incessantly racing outside myself for the shiny gold stars, for the achievement, for the medals, for the awards, for the material successes. And I finally said, I can chase this until I'm dead and it will never fill my inner void. So it was like staring me in the face that until you stop the external racing, and you dive inward and you finally accept what is inside you, which is a lot of darkness. It's both sides of the spectrum. Only the shiny side I had kind of tried to adopt through a facade, but in, only in accepting the full spectrum will you ever really be able to rest in peace. Yeah. Can you tell me what you remember about the first time you told your story? Oh, wow. The first time I told my story was on a podcast <laughs> because my dots started to connect really in a crazy manner. And it was through hearing other people's stories because once that clamor, that cry of my soul started being becoming louder and louder, I started listening to podcasts and which I had never listened to. I was not a podcast person, but it was like I needed the courage and I needed to hear other people like sharing their truth and shining their light to get the courage to do it myself. So this one particular podcast I listened to that had all like a lot of my favorite people sharing their truth. And I, I loved it. And the podcast uh, host, his name is Jonathan Fields and it's called uh, the good life project. 
he talked about his favorite book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who was a concentration camp survivor a while ago. And I had this book, I had read it years ago, never really thought twice about it because just wasn't ready. And hearing him talk about it so many times, I was like, you know what, I mean, it's a small book. I can read this in a couple hours. I'll just read it again. And that really changed my life. And basically that book made me realize that I actually wasn't alone in what I had felt my whole life. And labels are to me the most caging, restricting thing ever. But in this case, the label was the best thing ever. Because when you feel you're the only person in the cosmos who feels a certain way, and that leads you to such isolation that you feel you'll never belong. When you hear, no, you actually have existential depression. You're like, I have something that like is defined that many other people before me have had. It was like the most incredible revelation ever. So when I heard that, I started like, I'm a, a knowledge seeker. So when I hear something, I'm like, I got to investigate this. All these dots started connecting. And I realized even though I had never really spoken before, because I'm a creator and I create through my hands, I do not speak through my mouth. Because when you create through your hands, you can edit it continually and hone it. And when you write, you can keep crossing out words and fixing it. Usually when I speak, I don't have the chance to rewind it and take it back and recraft it. And inevitably, I say something that isn't uh, received well by my audience usually my, my kids. <laughs> so I, I, I'm used to like, it's better not to speak than to say something that's, that's wrongly perceived and like get someone upset with me. So, but I had this like lightning bolt. I have to go on this podcast and share my truth. And it was the most ludicrous thing ever from someone who had never spoken. <laughs> it was like, you're going to go on this pretty major podcast and tell your story like you don't even you don't even know how to speak. So, and I certainly didn't know this guy Jonathan Fields from anywhere. So, I ended up contacting him and getting on this podcast and I was so terrified of getting sharing my story that I didn't sleep for literally like 5 or 6 days before I could I was tossing and turning all night and I kept saying I can't do this. Like this is ridiculous. I don't know what got into you, Melissa. Like you've never done anything so impulsive in your life. Like what were you thinking? Who gives a hoot about your story? Like don't do it. And finally I did it and I was literally numb. I was almost in a coma because I was so terrified. I went in he, and I've heard his podcast so many times and he asked these same questions at the end. And it was like, here I was like, in the seat of the, the podcast I had heard so many times before. And then it was over. And of course, it was so such a big deal to me. Like nobody knew this except for Doug, two people in the world. Here I am sharing it with this like international audience. And it ends and I'm thinking like, he's going to say something like, he has to, like, this was incredible. Like, this is amazing. And he goes, thank you. So any plans this weekend? And I literally inside, I'm like, this has to be a joke. Like I am being punked right now because he can't just be acting like this is nothing. And then I was like, no, I don't think so. Cause I was just still in this daze. And he's like, okay, well talk to you soon. Bye. And I walked out and I was like, I think I just dreamed this. 
Like there is no way I just did that. And he was just like, so matter of fact, it was like nothing had happened. So that was the experience. And I almost forgot it even happened. I put it so out of my mind because I started then thinking, well, it obviously wasn't good enough. It's not going to air. It's never going to go out there. And it kind of like the, the mind games you start to play. So interesting. You're saying so many great things. First of all, I love the fact that you can't edit your mouth. I've heard that from myself also, where people are like, you know, it's just not funny. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Right? Yep. I am very, I think I'm funny. You, by the way, are, are pretty funny. And I Nobody also, thinks so. I can also totally relate to this idea of like, you, you're so in your head about, you know, your stories in your head. You've had the story, you know, you talk about this idea that like, you have to tell it now. Like there's, you can't survive anymore unless you tell your story and it's only yours. And the pressure, like I think that we all have of holding on to these secrets, you know, we hold on to them so tightly and we own them so dearly. Like I loved how you talked about having a label because then you could identify with a group, right? And it wasn't just you who had this issue. It's everybody else. And then offloading the story, which was in your head, which you expected to like, you know, I don't know, crowd of angels or something, some some trumpets, anything, right? And it was no big deal. To him, it was like just another story. And it was, it was a lesson I needed to learn. It was like, okay, big deal. That's your story. And here, exactly. I expected him to, to cry, to say, this is the best story I've ever heard. Nope, none of that. It was just like, Another story. Yeah. But in truth, right, um, telling that story, whether, you know, started started something huge for you and for everyone else who heard it. So even though his response was pretty mediocre, yeah. and I appreciate that because it's a great lesson to like then keep you wanting to tell your story, like without having a huge reaction, but it did start something. It started something huge. So what did it start? It did. And and yes, I think the lesson is you don't tell your story for others. You tell your story to heal yourself. Because, you know, when you heal yourself, you, you heal. And, and I write a, a verse. When you heal yourself, you heal the world as consciousness transcends single soul to all humanity and everyone ascends. So it's like you know, you go from yourself to then the world and you all can, can rise together. So that was the lesson. The lesson was the story is to heal myself so I can then heal others. And it really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of it because it's my story. So that was the lesson. And he was like that angel that was telling me that lesson. I now know. But yes, what happened when it finally did air, which was five months later, because he records so far in advance, was I received hundreds and hundreds of letters. And these weren't just like your, your average, like, oh, thanks so much for sharing your story. You know, love the podcast. These were, you are the first person who ever gave voice to feelings that I thought no one would ever understand. It was the exact same feeling I felt when I read, you know, Viktor Frankl's book. And those letters were so powerful and so poignant 
that I knew right then I was like, making toys has been amazing. It has been my salvation and I love it, you know, like breathing, but I don't think I will ever save a life making toys. But now, I mean, these people reaching out to me were basically saying, I don't know if I can hang on another day. You have somehow found the light. Are you able to shine it on me? And even though I'm not a professional and I knew I, I can't create meaning for someone else, you know, we can only create our own meaning. I knew that I could ask the right questions. I could share my own experience and I could show so many how I did transform true, utter darkness into, you know, beautiful light. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. So talk to me then about the transition over to lifelines. Yeah. So what I did then, I received hundreds of letters and I spent the next six months basically responding to all of them and even asking every single one of them, did they want to talk with me personally? Because I desperately wanted to connect with people like me. And when you live inauthentically, which I did my whole life, I really never made an authentic friendship my whole life. I didn't have like people I know would talk about getting together with childhood friends and going away and all these like ladies from college. And, you know, they talk about it with such fondness. And I was always so envious because I never had any of that. Because when you are just a shadow, when you're just a robot and you don't show any vulnerability and you're too perfect to ever you know, show anything other than just, oh, that's so sad. Oh, you know, I was just a phony. All my relationships were just, they didn't matter. They were meaningless to me. So I was desperate to have real, deep, meaningful, authentic relationships more than anything. I think that's what I craved the most is just real contact with friends, like to actually have friends. And that's why I wanted to connect with all these people. And I realized that The reason I never had friends is because I always ran away from people like me. You know, I wanted to be Barbie. Barbie was my favorite. I had one Barbie growing up and like the way Barbie looked was the way I wanted to look and the way I wanted to be. And she was so happy and she was like everything I wasn't. She didn't have oily skin. You know, she had like a flawless complexion an incredible figure. Her hair is always straight. Like her eyes are beautiful. She had a figure that was like, whoo, and it was everything I wasn't. And those were the people I wanted to be like and be friends with. And all the self-deprecating people who think they're humorous, but no, the world doesn't think they're humorous. All the curious intellectuals, all the creative misfits I like ran from because I was like, you're weird, which of course was exactly me. So I, I came back to myself and all those separate self-deprecating, humorous, sarcastic people and realized, oh my gosh, these are the people who, you know, should be my, my best friends. And it was, it's been really wonderful to come back home. I love what you're talking about. And the, in embracing those quirky creatives, you know, for you, Was it, did you learn just what I'm trying to get to is, did you learn how to love yourself through loving them or were you able to love yourself in order to love them? What was the, what what was the process there for you? That's a great question. I had to learn how to love myself and show myself compassion before I could have any authentic relationship with anyone. 
And that's why I never did because I despised myself. I despised every single quality that made me who I was and tried to deny, repress and disassociate from them my entire life. So I wasn't even living in my body. You know, I was living like externally focused on validation through achievement. And that's why, you know, when I got so exhausted, I saw that achievement for what it was, which was just a futile race. And ultimately, until I plunged inward into that abyss and truly accepted myself in all the qualities that made me who I was, I, I would never be able to form an authentic relationship. So I took the journey first and the journey is the centerpiece of our lifelines.com ecosystem. It's called the journey to inner space because I realized that my head and my heart were enmeshed in each other. And I could not figure out a way to gain space between my head, which told me a lot of very fallacious stories and told me a lot of mistruths that I believed. And my heart, that is just expressive liberation. My heart just wants to be free. My heart is like a little child who just wants to play all day. And my head is the punishing adult that says, no, you cannot play. You can't rest. You can't satiate yourself. You have to deny yourself everything. So that, that head was a very dangerous place for me. And once I took this journey, was able to actually gain space, truly distance between my heart and my head and see my head for all the erroneous things it told me, I was able to finally say, oh, I get it, ego. I get it, head. You're telling me all these things about myself that are based on traumas I experienced in childhood, but they're not true. They're just like something you told yourself. And I began to be able to see them for what they were, tell myself a new story, establish new neural pathways and begin to live more fully in my heart. And once I could do that, I began to accept all the full spectrum of who I was, because basically the shadow side of who I was, I disassociated from my whole life because my, my world told me, you can only be happy. You can only show the happy feelings. You can only show the shiny side. You can only be strong. You must fight through. You can't show any weakness. And serving, fighting through, pleasing became my virtues. And I believed that any sort of weakness was to be denied and meant that I was worthless. So, you know, I was common, I would say, in anchoring to perfectionism and martyrdom as my virtues and never showing anything other than those. And I, I mean, I, as a child, I would run the thermometer under cold water to make my temperature go down so I could go to school. Like, you know how people ran it under hot water? No, I thought missing school, missing anything that was going on that could potentially like make me lesser than and show me as weak was like unacceptable. So I could have a hundred four fever. I would literally take it, run it under cold water and say, oh, I don't have a fever. And I'd be like, you know, when you have, when you're young and you have a fever, you're like, you feel so heavy, but I'd pretend I was like feeling okay. And I'd go to school no matter how I felt. Wow. So that drive, you know, that drive to 
get you to school no matter what to yep. make sure that you don't miss anything and that everything on the outside looks fantastic. Where, where did that drive? How did it start inside of you? And, you know, how it manifested itself in both good and bad ways, right? Because yeah. there's a flip side, I'm sure. I mean, that drive was extremely well suited to be an entrepreneur and have six children simultaneously and have a, you know, a thousand people working for you. It, it was, it made me the highest achieving existentially depressed person, probably on the planet because I was like pilot on. And, and I basically said to the world, sometimes I would, I would say to myself, cause no one was listening, but I'd say, bring it on, pilot on, give me more. Like you can try to break me, but you won't. And that's how much I took on, you know? I mean, we'd have, you know, days when we had like board meetings at our house and 20 people sleeping over and my kids had four events at the same time. Like it was, and in a way it was very effective for someone who, if I got entrenched in my head, I could go down fast, but I was so busy with stuff for about 20 years. Like I couldn't even breathe. I was so busy in a way it worked very well. It kept me out of my head and it just kept me like checking boxes off of everything I needed to do each day. And before I knew it, it was midnight and I was like falling into bed, like half asleep because I was so exhausted. And it, it actually made me a high, high, high achiever. So I'd say that was the positive and it, it's innate. You know, I believe that will is in your neurons. And both Doug and I have it, whether you call it an insecurity, a chip on your shoulder, a dynamism in your cells, like I have to win. And to this day, I can never let my children win at anything. And even when they were little kids and parents were like, oh, I let them win. I was like, you let your kids win? Never would I let my kids win. And when I lose, I sulk. Like I'm, I'm so competitive about everything. It's, it's, I, I don't like it in myself, but I have this need to prove I'm right and to be right and to win. And, you know, I write in my book, even if I was like walking to a classroom, I would have to beat the person next to me. Like there wasn't, it wasn't a contest, but it was like, whatever I did, it had to be the best. And again, it's because I felt so insecure. I think it became my, my, you know, my valid method of validation. And then I had to prove to myself in every single thing I did that I was worthy. And it, it, it ultimately didn't even become about the external validation from others. It was my own demon in myself that demanded the perfection. So it sort of, at some point it superseded anything and just became this inner need to be perfect. And that's when it became the most damaging too, because it wasn't about anyone else anymore. It was just about me. Yeah. I mean, the, the similarities, I think, you know, across the board for high achievers, no matter what the channel, whether you're an athlete or an entrepreneur, you know, or an Uber mom, you still, that, that drive, that innate drive, I think can be very hurtful when it's, you know, goes unchecked. Can it, you talk? It's what I call, it's a blurse, you know, it's a blessing <laughs> and a curse. And for all its blessing, it's a curse because, you know, you, you, I served my whole life from an empty well. I never filled my own well of, of compassion, of, 
of service. It was empty. And when you serve from an empty well, ultimately you become angry, bitter, and bereft. And that's what ultimately over-serving did for me. I became a martyr as opposed to a selfless, compassionate person who was just serving out of her brimming well. That's so very beautifully said. Thank you. So now your well is full. Fuller. It's still one of my part, one of the parts of my practice, to be honest with you, that's the hardest for me. You know, I never, so many women, that's why I'm so glad you're interviewing me because so many women, like we don't learn how to serve ourselves. We become and we fall into these roles of pleasers to, to get validated, at least in anyone who grows up with a with a dysfunctional family where they don't know where they fit or someones they're worried someone will be angry at them. They fall into the pleasing role very early and always learn that serving yourself is indulgent and selfish. And that's my my one of my biggest erroneous mind stories was that, you know, serving myself is selfish. And that meant anything, feeding myself, selfish, sleeping, selfish, you know, buying something for myself, selfish. And that means you deny yourself, you punish yourself. And I think I'm still trying to learn, like, what do I need to keep my wealth full? Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the feelings or the, the percep perception shift, psychic change, the difference for you in the feeling of being of service now with your well partially full versus serving from a, an unfull, an empty well? Yes. I think, you know, when I served from an empty well, it was purely out of obligation. I was never getting anything in return. It was like I was just checking boxes off a list for the shiny stars. And what ultimately happened, which made me realize I was doing something that wasn't serving anyone, was, and, and I'll use it in motherhood because that's probably the most glaring example of it. You know, I thought I was being so selfless. I have six children and in serving their every need. And, and my thought was because I felt emotionally bereft in my own childhood that I would serve their every need and they would never want for anything. And that would make me heralded as mother of the, the century, right? And I'd be hoisted up on their shoulders and there'd be a parade, just like after the podcast, like I'd, you know, get all the, the, the cheers and the celebratory commendations that I so deserved. And what I ultimately saw was not only didn't I get them from my kids, because what I did in being selfish, not selfless, is I was serving them to validate myself and actually disabling them from gaining the skills they needed to become independent, resilient adults. So the more I served them, the more they actually needed me to keep serving them. So whenever I even stopped for a second, they were like, why aren't you serving me? Like, I need this. So they were disabled. And then I, because they weren't heralding me, they were actually angry that I wasn't even serving them more. So the more I served, the more they needed me. And I realized with horror one day that neither party was being served in any, in any fashion. And that actually my, what I believed was being selfless was the most selfish thing I could have done. And that's when I fell into such deep despair 
because I thought I've wasted my lifetime serving to be heralded. I'm not, not only am I not heralded, I'm like, I'm like disdain for not serving more. And, and my kids have no ability to serve themselves. So now I'm like stuck in this loop of serving forever because they don't even know how to do anything for themselves. So it was, it was horrifying. And I really had to change my patterns in a very slow manner because, you know, you can't go from serving everything to like, ah, I'm done because then it's almost like they don't even have the skills, but it was very slowly pulling back from like, you need a cup of water at age 16 at the water, you know, you could probably get that. Like, but literally I was the type of mom that would have gotten that for my teenager at one point because I thought it was what I needed to do. So it was pulling back, allowing my kids to do the things that they were certainly capable of doing, and then filling that space that I served, served, served with things that I could do slowly for myself. And I was such a martyr that when people said the phrase to me, put on your own oxygen mask first, you know, I would... I would scoff at that. I was like, that is so selfish. I would never put my own oxygen mask on first. I would always put it on my kids first, even if I were to go down. And I now see that that was true all along. Like, again, you have to fill your own well to truly give from your well compassionately. So I'm slowly doing it. And it feels really weird it feels really selfish and indulgent still, but it feels really good. Like when I do something for myself, it's I, cra- I, I feel it like deep in my cells. Like, oh my gosh, I crave this so much. I just never allowed it. And it makes me want to, I feel my will well feeling filling up. And then when I'm with others, I feel just the giving come naturally. It's not forced anymore. So I think it it becomes a natural output when your well is full rather than I have to do this because they can't do it for themselves. That's a beautiful thing. And I think it's something that a lot of mothers certainly struggle with. Mm-hmm. It's It's easy to be of service in that way because it's easy, you know? It is. It is. And, it, and I, and it, it did validate me, you know, made me feel needed and wanted and that I was important, which I never felt otherwise. So when I see now my kids starting to build these skills much later than others who didn't have their moms serve them, it, it's gratifying. And the other thing, you know, it was, it was very hard for me to do, but I now see that if I'm the role model for my children, Even if I don't want to do it for myself, I have to do it for them because what I want my four daughters to become like me, to become a bereft, angry, bitter martyr and and not do anything for themselves, never. So like the thought that that's the model I was showing them, that was horrifying to me, even more than, you know, needing to serve myself. I now view it as I have to set up a role model for them to follow and, and not make them fall into that same pattern. So it makes it easier to do it when I'm doing it as that. You know, then it seems like more selfless. I'm like, oh, I gotta take a bath because I gotta prove to my daughters they can take a bath too. 
I love that. What one thing someone said to me once when I was having, you know, issues, I, I honestly can't remember what it was at this point, but it they had said to me like, "What would you tell your daughter to do?" Mm-hmm. And I thought it was such a great way of looking at that, like, what is that self-care, right? In that in those moments or what's the what are the choices that you want to make? What's the advice that you want to give to yourself? For me, it's a good way to look at, yeah, what would I tell my daughter, you know? And And it would always be to do the thing that is, and so now I've reframed the word even. I don't call it selfish anymore. I call it self-full. I'm being self-full. And that's when I think, again, I need metaphors because I, otherwise I don't do things. But if I think of it as this well, that's just dry and, and then I'm taking from something that isn't even, you know, that I'm taking from myself when I think about full, like I'm filling that well, and then I can just take from this brimming well. So yeah. I'm now trying to be more selfful. I love that. I know we're, we're running out of time here and I want to get to the, the, the tools of lifelines. So I know you have some that are very specific to you. I'm sure that you use them to help maybe self-full is one of them. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yes. And, and they're for everybody. The, the practice you fill the compartments of your backpack with your specific practice, but the, but the compartments have the same names for all of us. And so once I made this journey inward and finally accepted who I was in totality, which took years, I was really disassociated from who I was. And I finally accepted that I am a highly sensitive, overly excitable, introverted, creative, and that those hypersensitivities are actually what give me the ability to create and that I do have this blur. That was like, I would say, I was able to breathe fresh air for the very first time because I realized that this ability to create comes with a price. And I'm willing to suffer through that price to be able to create. And that was like, that was freedom. So I think that was the beginning of it. But then the other part of it was, if I'm going to accept that I am this full spectrum of emotion, then that means that I'm going to have some days that I'm on the low side of that spectrum. Because being highly creative and very overly sensitive I go from ups to downs, pretty extreme, sometimes within the same day. And, and I feel both the beauty and the pain of the world are unbearable to me and, and so emotional that I cry. When I see something beautiful, I cry. When I see something despairing, I cry. So well, how was I going to handle that? Because I had chosen to do this journey holistically. I was very terrified of using any form of medication that might dampen my creativity because that really was the only reason I was here. So if I was going to try to do this holistically, what was my form of medication going to be? Because I needed something to either pull me down when I was too high in the clouds, in the mania of creativity, or when I was so low that I could be swallowed from the darkness. So I needed a practice to help me each day be as centered and balanced and equanimous as I can be. And that became this practice that... I really now call, I sort of say practice makes purpose because for me, the practice has become how I make meaning and how I sort of unlock my full potential each and every day. And without it, I feel myself start to slip 
below the line. When I was denying it all, I kind of just existed because I just denied it. But now that I feel it, it can feel really overwhelming. So it's four, four words that begin with the letter E, and uh, which makes it easy. We call it living life with ease. And uh, the first one is energy. And energy is that self-care component. Energy is how can I have my full life force, my full vitality, my well full each and every day. Because if you don't serve your physiological needs, then all you are focused on is filling them. Like when I didn't eat, when I starved myself, all I thought about 24 seven was eating and food. And I couldn't focus on how to serve my soul, what my innate sparks were. I was like desperate to feed myself. So those of us who deny ourselves our, you know, physical needs being filled are just going to be focused on gratifying them and we're never going to get any further. So for me, it's how do I nourish my body? How do I move my body in a way that doesn't become addictive? Because exercise for me, I go into like too much very quickly. How do I rest my body in a way that I get proper relaxation because I don't like to sleep. I think it's a waste of time, but I know it's essential. And how do I take care of my body preventively and go to doctors and things that I never do and, and do checkups and things so that I can have that longevity and vitality to realize my full potential. So energy for some people maybe is very easy. They, they are really good at sort of serving themselves. For me, it's like the hardest part of my practice because I denied my, my needs for so long. So that's the first. The second one is essential for all of us and maybe one of our hardest things. That's equanimity. And equanimity is twofold. It's how do I stop racing and get out of my head and become present in my life because most of us aren't even living in our lives. We're living in our heads, which are either in the past or the future. So how do we become present in our lives? And then the practice of actually equanimity is how do I gain that space between what my head is telling me and what my heart is feeling? And being equanimous means you start to become a witness to your feelings, your triggers, your emotions, and be able to look at them for what they are, which is usually a mind story or your fight or flight response or a trigger from childhood. And that's been, that's a daily practice for me. When I become triggered, instead of reacting from that triggered place in my head, I just take a breath. I try to, I call it be the sky. I try to pretend I'm the sky and all my thoughts, my feelings, my reactions, my triggers are just the weather patterns going on by. And when I think about the sky, I know the sky isn't yelling at the dark clouds. It's not like, get out of my way. I want to be blue. The sky is pretty much just accepting that weather patterns come and go. And one day it'll be blue. The next day it won't. So that's equanimity. I do it all the time. The third uh, compartment is essence. And essence is asking that question, like, who am I? What am I here to do? What do I want to manifest to the world? When am I engaging my passions and my talents to do what I'm on this earth to do? And that is really hard to discover, especially when society sort of puts you in a box. And I think those questions are questions that change throughout our lives. Like what I was here to do 30 years ago, you know, was make toys. What I'm here to do now is something different. 
is to connect with others and help them channel their darkness into light. So I think those questions are, I kind of ask every day of myself. I'm like, okay, who, what, who am I today? What am I here to do? I mean, some of the answers don't change. Who am I doesn't change. But I think, how do I want to manifest who I am to the world? And how do I want to, in, what are my sparks of self-expression? How do I want to harness them? That, those are questions that can change um, or not. And then the fourth bucket, which is really also important, is engagement. And that's like the most critical because that's when you take your essence and you harness it to bring it out to the world. And engagement, I call it our sparks that we're born with, but most of us lose touch, lose sight, lose connection to our sparks because of societal you know, convention and cultural assimilation. We, we never either discover or we lose sight of who we really are. So once we, in our essence, figure out what our sparks are again, we have to harness them. And we have two types of sparks. We have our play sparks, which are purely the things we do for fun. You know, that's like if you love to garden or you love to run or play sports or whatever you love to do, craft, sing, dance, those are play sparks and you have to engage them each and every day. You have to connect with that inner child in order to find joy or you will fall into despair. And then our meaning sparks are the, the sparks that, are forms of joy, but those are the ones that you must connect to humanity to touch them and impact them to really create meaning. Because you can't really create meaning from your play sparks. They're fun and you enjoy them. But I know when I just did things for fun, I still felt that lack of meaning. It was only when I took my form of self-expression and used it to connect to others in helping them that I suddenly was like, oh, that's my meaning. And then the last form of engagement is once we harness our sparks, once we are authentically vibing our essence, then we can finally, the last piece of it is we can connect with others as who we truly are. And the ultimate engagement is engaging with the, the bonfire of humanity and truly realizing that we're all the same, you know, we're all sort of the same, the same people wanting the same things, but you can't really engage in true unity until you have unearthed your sparks, harnessed them, and kind of connected yourself to the whole of everything. Whoa, that's that's a lot. <laughs> There's so many things I want to ask you about that, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I, I'm gonna. I've got I, time. I'd love to ask you one last question and. As this Uber achiever, you know, for 30 years, you made toys, right? Heavily competitive environment, incredibly successful at it. You did it from a place that was probably a balance of being, you know, as you describe it, you know, your inauthentic self, right? Having no touch with reality, but really just checking boxes. I'm sure that drive fed you in some way. So it allowed you to keep, stay on the treadmill maybe a lot longer than other people might have been able to. And now you're you're on to this new thing. And it's got a huge service component to it. It's got a huge piece of getting to know yourself and opportunities for exploration, self-exploration, actualization, realization, however you want to call it. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection of those two pieces of your life? The the so what which two? The because I'm wondering now with lifelines, like how do you stop yourself from <laughs> Melissa and dugging it, you know, for lack of a better way to say it? 
Or well, do you want to? Is it just I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me. Great. Well, I don't know if this is this is a great answer or not, but we are creating tangible products as well. So I think, you know, I I gained such salvation from channeling darkness into light and creating tangible form from the darkness. When I can take this darkness that still rages through me on a daily basis and I can turn it into something light and bright, there is no greater feeling. And I am intoxicated by it. In fact, you know, my daily mantra is step on out of the head, moving into the heart, free to channel all dread into jubilant art. And that is, it has to be art of some form, some form of creation. So interest, interestingly, you know, product creation is something I really love more than anything, because it always starts with an experience that a user's having and a question like, why is that experience flawed in that way? And why can't it be better? Uh, so I always start with that question, which always inevitably, you know, lends me to say it can be better and I'm going to make it better. And the same thing is happening now with lifelines because I've developed this practice. I need to fill my well. I need to become equanimous. I need to ignite my sparks. And so do others. And there are all these tools that I have been looking for, for my own practice and haven't been able to find that I am now creating. So, and, and they will be in my backpack of lifelines and they will help support my practice and others as well. So I think this new, you know, chapter is really the alchemy of every single thing I've done. You know, I'm not only harnessing my sparks of creativity into tangible products, but I'm harnessing the essence of who I am as a person into helping guide others on their journeys. I'm connecting with my authentic self in new relationships that are truly fulfilling me and fulfilling them. And I think I've really reached this point where I am fulfilling my potential in, in a way I only imagined. Because, you know, I always feared that I would, again, get to the end of my life. And the number one regret of those on their deathbeds is I never lived a life true to myself. And I never wanted, I was terrified of getting there. And I now, you know, know I won't because, and I was even terrified before the book came out, I, I have this fear of mortality. That's my whole existential issue. I was so fearful I wouldn't get to that point and not be able to realize you know, my truth and tell my story and help others and sort of get to the point where I can help others realize their full potential. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting there every single day. And, you know, it feels really fulfilling, I would have to say. And I think it, it now makes me see why so many in the world are despairing. Because if you are engaged in inauthenticity, through your relationships, which you need. I mean, we are biological and need authentic relationships. So if your relationships are inauthentic, which mine were my whole life, and other than with Doug, you know, he he's my 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 bestie, but but other ones in my life were were not authentic. And if you are not engaging your sparks, which are your true form of self-expression, and you're like living someone else's dream of what you were supposed to do in life. Well, by definition, you will fall into despair.
So when we see this epidemic of depression, anxiety, it's because everybody's, you know, doing, they're, they're not vibing their authentic selves. They're living inauthentically and not harnessing their true potential and becoming an individual in that way. Very well said. And I appreciate you bringing it back to the, to, the, to the rest of us and to the rest of the world right now. It's certainly a pain point. And even as we come out of COVID, I think, you know, people have had to look in a mirror. They've been left alone with themselves a lot over the course of the last year. And that can be really good and it can be really bad. And, you know, one thing I think about, especially with my family also, as, as we emerge from this time, like, how do we not lose the preciousness, you know, the ability to look within or the connections that we've made that are more real because, you know, we were in places where we needed to be vulnerable. So do you have any parting words for us in terms of how we can keep, keep the good stuff? The only way we do it is through intentional and deliberate practice. And that is why I hold on to this practice like my lifeline. And every day I make sure I fill each compartment. Because again, if I'm not kindling my sparks, and, and if we're not kindling our sparks, if we're not engaging in authentic relationships with others and deliberately planning times to do it. So when it's in my backpack, the engagement piece it means I have to plan times to get together with those who I love, because as an introvert, I won't. I'll just kind of say, I don't need to do it. Just like self-care. I'll be like, I don't need to take care of myself today. I'll be fine. And the more you say that, the more, you know, yeah, one day may be okay, but then it turns into a week, two weeks, suddenly it's three months and you haven't seen anyone. And that's when it'll sneak up behind you and suddenly you'll fall victim to it. So. I truly believe we all need to value ourselves enough to say, I need a practice. I need something that I do intentionally every single day. And that's what I do. And for me so far, you know, I'm still uh, newly out of my acceptance of myself and into the practice, but I've been to some really dark lows since then. And my practice has really saved me. So I do think you know, a form of practice that you can do that fills your, your well and engages you with others and engages you with what makes your heart sing is the only answer to coming through this and, and being your authentic self. Beautifully said. I love the commitment to yourself. Yeah, Thank you. It's the hardest thing to commit to, but it's the only way we'll ever get there. Yeah. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. 